Death, pillow slipping gently under his red robe, stood in the middle of the nursery carpet. It was an old one. Things ended up in the nursery when they'd seen a complete tour of duty in the rest of the house. Long ago, someone had made it by carefully knotting long bits of brightly coloured rag into a sacking base, giving it the look of a deflated Rastafarian hedgehog. Things lived among the rags. There were old rusks, bits of toy, buckets of dust. It had seen life. It may even have evolved some. Now the occasional lump of grubby, melting snow dropped onto it. Susan was crimson with anger. I mean, why? she demanded, walking around the figure. This is Hog's Watch. It's supposed to be jolly, with mistletoe and holly and, and other things ending in ollie. It's a time when people want to feel good about things and eat until they explode. It's a time when they want to see all their relatives... She stopped that sentence. I mean, it's a time when humans are really human, she said, and they don't want a, 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 a skeleton at the feast. Especially one, I might add, who's wearing a false beard and has got a damn cushion shoved up his robe. I mean, why? Death looked nervous. Albert said it would help me get into the spirit of the thing. Ah... Uh, it's good to see you again. There was a small, squelchy noise. Susan spun round, grateful right now for any distraction. Don't think I can't hear you. They're grapes, understand? And the other things are satsumas. Get out of the fruit bowl. Can't blame a bird for trying, said the raven sulkily from the table. And you, you leave those nuts alone. They're for tomorrow. Squeak! said the death of rats, swallowing hurriedly. Susan turned back to death. The hogfather's artificial stomach was now at groin level. This is a nice house, she said, and this is a good job, and it's real, with normal people, and I was looking forward to a real life where normal things happen, and suddenly the old circus comes to town. Look at yourselves! Three stooges, no waiting. Well, I don't know what's going on, but you can all leave again, right? This is my life. It doesn't belong to any of you. It's not going to... There was a muffled curse, a rush of soot, and a skinny old man landed in the grate. Bum, he said. Good grief, raged Susan, and here is Pixie Albert. Well, well, well. Come along in, do. If the real Hogfather doesn't come soon, there's not going to be a room. He won't be joining us, said Death. The pillow slid softly onto the rug. Oh, and why not? Both of the children did letters to him, said Susan. There's rules, you know. Yes, there are rules, and they're on the list. I checked it. Albert pulled the pointy hat off his head and spat out some soot. Right, he did. Twice, he said. Anything to drink round here? So what have you turned up for? Susan demanded. And if it's for business reasons, I will add, then that outfit is in extremely poor taste. The Hogfather is <clears throat> unavailable. Unavailable? At Hog's Watch? Yes. Why? He is... Let me see. There isn't an entirely appropriate human word, so let's settle for dead. Yes. He is dead. Susan had never hung up a stocking. She'd never looked for eggs laid by the sole cake duck. She'd never put a tooth under her pillow in the serious expectation that a dentally inclined fairy would turn up. 
It wasn't that her parents didn't believe in such things. They didn't need to believe in them. They knew they existed. They just wished they didn't. Oh, there had been presents at the right time, with a careful label saying who they were from, and a superb egg on soul cake morning filled with sweets. Juvenile teeth earned no less than a dollar each from her father, without argument, but it was all straightforward. In fact, when she was eight, she'd found a collection of animal skulls in an attic, relic of some former duke of an inquiring turn of mind. Her father had been a bit preoccupied with affairs of state, and she'd made $27 before being found out. The hippopotamus molar had, with hindsight, been a mistake. Skulls never frightened her, even then. She knew now that they'd been trying to protect her. She hadn't known then that her father had been Death's apprentice for a while, and that her mother was Death's adopted daughter. She'd had very dim recollections of being taken a few times to see someone who'd been quite, well, jolly in a strange, thin way, and the visits had suddenly stopped. And she'd met him later, and yes, he had his good side, and for a while she'd wondered why her parents had been so unfeeling, and she knew now why they'd tried to keep her away. There was far more to genetics than little squirmy spirals. She could walk through walls when she really had to. She could use a tone of voice that was more like actions than words, that somehow reached inside people and operated all the right switches. And her hair. That had only happened recently, though. It used to be unmanageable, but at around the age of 17, she had found it more or less managed itself. That had lost her several young men. Someone's hair rearranging itself into a new style the tresses curling around themselves like a nest of kittens, could definitely put the crimp on any relationship. She'd been making good progress, though. She could go for days now without feeling anything other than entirely human. But it was always the case, wasn't it? You could go out into the world, succeed on your own terms, and sooner or later, some embarrassing old relative was bound to turn up. Grunting and swearing... The gnome clambered out of another drainpipe, jammed its hat firmly on its head, threw its sack onto a snowdrift and jumped down after it. It's a good one, he said. Ah, take him weeks to get rid of that one. He took a crumpled piece of paper out of a pocket and examined it closely. Then he looked at an elderly figure working away quietly at the next house. It was standing by a window, drawing with great concentration on the glass. The gnome wandered up, interested, and watched critically. Why just fern patterns? he said after a while. Pretty, yeah, but you wouldn't catch me putting a penny in your hat for fern patterns. The figure turned, brush in hand. I happen to like fern patterns, said Jack Frost, coldly. It's just that people expect, you know, sad, big-eyed kids, kittens looking out of boots, little doggies, that sort of thing. I do ferns. Or big pots of sunflowers. Happy seaside scenes. And ferns. I mean, supposing some big high priest wanted you to paint the temple ceiling with gods and angels and such like, what did you do then? He could have as many gods and angels as he liked, provided they looked like ferns. I resent the implication that I am solely fern-fixated, said Jack Frost. I can also do a very nice paisley pattern. What's that look like, then? Well... It does, admittedly, have a certain ferny quality to the uninitiated eye. Frost leaned forward. Who are you? The gnome took a step backwards. You're not a tooth fairy, are you? I see more and more of them about these days. Mm, nice girls. Nah, nah, not teeth, said the gnome, clutching his sack. What then? The gnome told him. Really, said Jack Frost. 
I thought they just turned up. Well, come to that, I thought frost on the windows just happened all by itself, said the gnome. Yeah, you don't half look spiky. I bet you go through a lot of bedsheets. I don't sleep, said Frost icily, turning away. And now, if you'll excuse me, I have a large number of windows to do. Ferns aren't easy. You need a steady hand. What do you mean, dead? Susan demanded. How can the Hogfather be dead? He's... isn't he what you are? An... Anthropomorphic personification? Yes, he has become so. The spirit of Hogswatch. But how? How can anyone kill the Hogfather? Poisoned sherry? Spikes in the chimney? There are more subtle ways. Cough, 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 cough. Oh, oh dear, this shoot, said Albert loudly. Chokes me up something cruel. And you've taken over, said Susan, ignoring him. That's sick. Death contrived to look hurt. I'll just go and have a look <clears throat> somewhere, said Albert, brushing past her and opening the door. She pushed it shut quickly. And what are you doing here, Albert? she said, clutching at the straw. I thought you'd die if you ever came back to the world. Ah, but we are not in the world, said Death. We are in the special congruent reality created for the Hogfather. Normal rules have to be suspended. How else could anyone get around the entire world in one night? Shright, said Albert, leering. One of the Hogfather's little helpers, me. Mm, official, got the pointy green hat and everything. He spotted the glass of sherry and a couple of turnips that the children had left on the table and bore down on them. Susan looked shocked. A couple of days earlier, she'd taken the children to the Hogfather's grotto in one of the big shops in the mall. Of course, it wasn't the real one, but it had turned out to be a fairly good actor in a red suit. There had been people dressed up as pixies and a picket outside the shop by the Campaign for Equal Heights. The C.E.H. was always ready to fight for the rights of the differently tall and was not put off by the fact that most pixies and gnomes weren't the least bit interested in dressing up in little pointy hats with bells on when there were other far more interesting things to do. All that tinkly-wee stuff was for the old folks back home in the forest. When a tiny man hit Ankh Morpork, he preferred to get drunk, kick some serious ankle and search for tiny women. In fact, the C.E.H. now had to spend so much time explaining to people that they hadn't got enough rights that they barely had any time left to fight for them. None of the pixies had looked anything like Albert. If they had, people would have only gone into the grotto armed. "'Been good, have you?' said Albert and spat into the fireplace. Susan stared at him. Death leaned down. She stared up into the blue glow of his eyes. "'You are keeping well?' he said. "'Yes.' Self-reliant, making your own way in the world? Yes. Good. Well, come, Albert, we will load the stockings and get on with things. A couple of letters appeared in Death's hand. Someone christened the child Twyla? I'm afraid so, but what? And the other one, Gawain? Yes, but look how... Why Gawain? I suppose it's a good strong name for a fighter. A self-fulfilling prophecy, I suspect. I see the girl writes in green crayon on pink paper with a mouse in the corner. The mouse is wearing a dress. I ought to point out that she decided to do that so the Hogfather would think she was sweet.
said Susan, including the deliberate bad spelling. But look, why are you... She says she is five years old. In years, yes. In cynicism, she's about thirty-five. Why are you doing the... But she believes in the Hogfather? She'd believe in anything if there was a dolly in it for her. But you're not going to leave without telling me... Death hung the stockings back on the mantelpiece. Now we must be going. Happy Hog's Watch. Er... Oh, yes. Ho, ho, ho. Nice sherry, said Albert, wiping his mouth. Rage overtook Susan's curiosity. It had to travel quite fast. You've actually been drinking the actual drinks little children leave out for the actual Hogfather, she said. Yeah, why not? He ain't drinking them, not where he's gone. And how many have you had, may I ask? Jano, <coughs> ain't counted, said Albert happily. One million, eight hundred thousand, seven hundred and six, said Death, and sixty-eight thousand, three hundred and nineteen pork pies, and one turnip. It looked pork pie-shaped, said Albert. Everything does, after a while. Then why haven't you exploded? Dunno. Always had a good digestion. To the Hogfather, all pork pies are as one pork pie, except the one like a turnip. Come, Albert, we have trespassed on Susan's time. Why are you doing this? Susan screamed. I am sorry I cannot tell you. Forget you saw me. It's not your business. Not my business. How can... And now we must be going. Nighty night, said Albert. The clock struck twice for the half hour. It was still half past six, and they were gone. The sledge hurtled across the sky. She'll try to find out what this is all about, you know, said Albert. Oh, dear. Especially after you told her not to. You think so? Yeah, said Albert. Dear me, I still have a lot to learn about humans, don't I? Well, oh, I don't know, said Albert. Obviously it would be quite wrong to involve a human in all this. That is why, you will recall, I clearly forbade her to take an interest. Yeah, you did. Besides, it's against the rules. You said them little grey buggers had already broken the rules. Yes, but I can't just wave a magic wand and make it all better. There must be procedures. Death stared ahead for a moment and then shrugged. And we have so much to do... We have promises to keep. Well, the night is young, said Albert, sitting back in the sacks. The night is old. The night is always old. The pigs galloped on. Then, no, it ain't. I'm sorry? The night isn't any older than the day, master. Stands to reason. There must have been a day before anyone knew what the night was. Yes, but it's more dramatic. Oh, right then. Susan stood by the fireplace. It wasn't as though she disliked death. Death, considered as an individual rather than life's final curtain, was someone she couldn't help liking, in a strange kind of way. Even so, the idea of the grim reaper filling the hog's watch stockings of the world didn't fit well in her head, no matter which way she twisted it. It was like trying to imagine old man trouble as the tooth fairy. Oh yes, old man trouble, now there was a nasty one for you. But honestly, what kind of sick person went around creeping into little children's bedrooms all night? Well, the Hogfather, of course, but... 
there was a little tinkling sound from somewhere near the base of the hogswatch tree. The raven backed away from the shards of one of the glittering bulls. Sorry, it mumbled. Bit of a species reaction there, you know, round, glittering. Sometimes you just got a peck. That chocolate money belongs to the children. Squeak, said the death of rats, backing away from the shiny coins. Why is he doing this? Squeak. You don't know either? Squeak. Is there some kind of trouble? Did he do something to the real hog father? Squeak. Why won't he tell me? Squeak. Thank you. You've been very helpful. Something ripped behind her. She turned and saw the raven carefully removing a strip of red wrapping paper from a package. Stop that this minute! It looked up guiltily. Only a little bit, it said. No one's going to miss it. What do you want it for, anyway? We're attracted to bright colours, right? Automatic reaction. That's jackdaws. Damn, is it? The death of rats nodded. Squeak. Ah, so suddenly you're Mr Ornithologist, are you? snapped the raven. Susan sat down and held out her hand. The death of rats leapt onto it. She could feel its claws like tiny pins. It was just like those scenes where the sweet and pretty heroine sings a little duet with Mr Bluebird. Well, similar, anyway. In general outline, at least, but with more of a PG rating. Has he gone funny in the head? Squeak, the rat shrugged. But it could happen, couldn't it? He's very old, and I suppose he sees a lot of terrible things. Squeak. All the trouble in the world, the raven translated. I understood, said Susan. That was a talent, too. She didn't understand what the rat said, she just understood what it meant. There's something wrong, and he won't tell me, said Susan. That made her even more angry. But Albert is in on it, too, she added. She thought. Thousands, millions of years in the same job, not a nice one. It isn't always cheerful old men passing away at a great age. Sooner or later it was bound to get anyone down. Someone had to do something. It was like that time when Twyla's grandmother had started telling everyone that she was the Empress of Krull and had stopped wearing clothes. And Susan was bright enough to know that the phrase someone ought to do something was not by itself a helpful one. People who used it never added the rider, and that someone is me. But someone ought to do something, and right now the whole pool of someones consisted of her and no one else. Twyla's grandmother had ended up in a nursing home overlooking the sea at Querm. That sort of option probably didn't apply here. Besides, he'd be unpopular with the other residents. She concentrated. This was the simplest talent of them all. She was amazed that other people couldn't do it. She shut her eyes, placed her hands palm down in front of her at shoulder height, spread her fingers and lowered her hands. When they were halfway down, she heard the clock stop ticking. The last tick was long drawn out, like a death rattle. Time stopped, but duration continued. She'd always wondered when she was small why visits to her grandfather could go on for days, and yet when they got back the calendar was still plodding along as if they'd never been away. Now she knew the why, although probably no human being would ever really understand the how. Sometimes, somewhere, somehow, the numbers on the clock did not count. Between every rational moment were a billion irrational ones. Somewhere behind the hours there was a place where the Hogfather rode, the Tooth Fairies climbed their ladders, Jack Frost drew his pictures, the Soul Cake Duck laid her chocolate eggs. In the endless spaces between the clumsy seconds, death moved like a witch dancing through raindrops, never getting wet. 
Humans could live... No, humans couldn't live here, because even when you diluted a glass of wine with a bath full of water, you might have more liquid, but you still have the same amount of wine. A rubber band was still the same rubber band, no matter how far it was stretched. Humans could exist here, though. It was never too cold, although the air did prickle like winter air on a sunny day. But out of human habit, Susan got her cloak out of the closet. Squeak! Haven't you got some mice and rats to see to, then? Nah, it's pretty quiet just before Hog's Watch, said the raven, who was trying to fold the red paper between his claws. You get a lot of gerbils and hamsters and that in a few days, mind, when the kids forget to feed them or try to find out what makes them go. Of course, she'd be leaving the children, but it wasn't as if anything could happen to them. There wasn't any time for it to happen to them in. She hurried down the stairs and let herself out of the front door. Snow hung in the air. It was not a poetic description. It hovered like the stars. When flakes touched Susan, they melted with little electric flashes. There was a lot of traffic in the street, but it was fossilised in time. She walked carefully between it until she reached the entrance to the park. The snow had done what even wizards and the watch couldn't do, which was clean up Ankh Morpork. It hadn't had time to get dirty. In the morning it had probably looked as though the city had been covered in coffee meringue, but for now it mounded the bushes and trees in pure white. There was no noise. The curtains of snow shut out the city lights. A few yards into the park and she might as well be in the country. She stuck her fingers into her mouth and whistled. You know, that could have been done with a bit more ceremony, said the raven, who'd perched on a snow-encrusted twig. Shut up. It's good, though. Better than most women could do. Shut up. They waited. Why have you stolen that piece of red paper from a little girl's present? said Susan. I've got plans, said the raven darkly. They waited again. She wondered what would happen if it didn't work. She wondered if the rat would snigger. It had the most annoying snigger in the world. Then there were the hoofbeats, and the floating snow burst open, and the horse was there. Binky trotted round in a circle and then stood and steamed. He wasn't saddled. Death's horse didn't let you fall. If I get on, Susan thought, it'll all start again. I'll be out of the light and into the world beyond this one. I'll fall off the tightrope. But a voice inside her said, You want to, though, don't you? Ten seconds later, there was only the snow. The raven turned to the death of rats. Any idea where I can get some string? Squeak. She was watched. One said, Who is she? One said, Do we remember that death adopted a daughter? The young woman is her daughter. One said, She is human. One said, Mostly. One said, Can she be killed? One said, oh, yes. One said, well, that's all right, then. One said, uh, we don't think we're going to get into trouble over this, do we? All this is not exactly authorised. We don't want questions asked. One said, we have a duty to rid the universe of sloppy thinking. One said, Everyone will be grateful when they find out. Binky touched down lightly on Death's lawn. Susan didn't bother with the front door but went round the back, which was never locked. There had been changes, one significant change at least. There was a cat flap in the door. She stared at it. 
After a second or two, a ginger cat came through the flap, gave her an I'm-not-hungry-and-you're-not-interesting look, and padded off into the gardens. Susan pushed open the door into the kitchen. Cats of every size and colour covered every surface. Hundreds of eyes swivelled to watch her. It was Mrs Gamage all over again, she thought. The old woman was a regular in beers for the company, and was quite gaga, and one of the symptoms of those going completely yo-yo was that they broke out in chronic cats. Usually cats who'd mastered every detail of feline existence except the whereabouts of the dirt box. Several of them had their noses in a bowl of cream. Susan had never been able to see the attraction in cats. They were owned by the kind of people who liked puddings. There were actual people in the world whose idea of heaven would be a chocolate cat. Push off the lot of you, she said. I've never known him have pets. The cats gave her a look to indicate that they were intending to go somewhere else in any case, and strolled off, licking their chops. The bowl slowly filled up again. They were obviously living cats. Only life had colour here. Everything else was created by death. Colour, along with plumbing and music, were arts that escaped the grasp of his genius. She left them in the kitchen and wandered along to the study. There were changes here, too. By the look of it, he'd been trying to learn to play the violin again. He'd never been able to understand why he couldn't play music. The desk was a mess. Books lay open, piled on one another. They were the ones Susan had never learned to read. Some of the characters hovered above the pages or moved in complicated little patterns as they read you while you read them. Intricate devices had been scattered across the top. They looked vaguely navigational, but on what oceans and under which stars? Several pages of parchment had been filled up with death's own handwriting. It was immediately recognisable. No one else Susan had ever met had handwriting with serifs. It looked as though he'd been trying to work something out. Not Clatch, not Hawanderland, not the Empire. Let us say twenty million children at two pounds of toys per child equals 17,857 tonnes, 1,785 tonnes per hour. Memo, don't forget the sooty footprints. More practice on the ho-ho-ho. Cushion. She put the paper back carefully. Sooner or later it'd get to you. Death was fascinated by humans, and study was never a one-way thing. A man might spend his life peering at the private life of elementary particles and then find he either knew who he was or where he was, but not both. Death had picked up humanity, not the real thing, but something that might pass for it until you examined it closely. The house even imitated human houses. Death had created a bedroom for himself, despite the fact that he never slept. If he really picked things up from humans, had he tried insanity? It was very popular, after all. Perhaps, after all these millennia, he wanted to be nice. She let herself into the room of lifetimers. She'd liked the sound of it when she was a little girl, but now the hiss of sand from millions of hourglasses and the little pings and pops as full ones vanished and new empty ones appeared was not so enjoyable. Now she knew what was going on. Of course, everyone died sooner or later. It just wasn't right to be listening to it happening. She was about to leave when she noticed the open door in a place where she had never seen a door before. It was disguised. A whole section of shelving, complete with its whispering glasses, had swung out. Susan pushed it back and forth with a finger. When it was shut, you'd have to look hard to see the crack. There was a much smaller room on the other side. It was merely the size of, say, a cathedral. 
and it was lined floor to ceiling with more hourglasses that Susan could just see dimly in the light from the big room. She stepped inside and snapped her fingers. Light, she commanded. A couple of candles sprang into life. The hourglasses were... wrong. The ones in the main room, however metaphorical they might be, were solid-looking things of wood and brass and glass, but these looked as though they were made of highlights and shadows with no real substance at all. She peered at a large one. The name in it was Ofla. The crocodile god, she thought. Well, gods had a life, presumably, but they never actually died, as far as she knew. They just dwindled away to a voice on the wind and a footnote in some textbook on religion. There were other gods lined up. She recognised a few of them. But there were smaller lifetimers on the shelf. When she saw the labels, she nearly burst out laughing. The Tooth Fairy, the Sandman, John Barleycorn, the Soul Cake Duck, the God of... what? She stepped back and something crunched under her feet. There were shards of glass on the floor. She reached down and picked up the biggest. Only a few letters remained of the name, etched into the glass. Hogfa. Oh no, it's true. Granddad, what have you done? When she left, the candles winked out. Darkness sprang back, and in the darkness, among the spilled sand, a faint sizzle and a tiny spark of light. Mustrum Ridcully adjusted the towel around his waist. How are we doing, Mr. Modo? The university gardener saluted. The tanks are full, Mr. Arch-Chancellor, sir, he said brightly, and I've been stoking the hot water boilers all day. The other senior wizards clustered in the doorway. Really, Mustrum, I, I really think this is most unwise, said the lecturer in recent runes. It was surely sealed up for a purpose. Remember what it said on the door, said the dean. Oh, they just wrote that on it to keep people out, said Ridcully, opening a fresh bar of soap. Well, yes, said the chair of indefinite studies. That's right. That's what people do. It's a bathroom, said Ridcully. You are all acting as if it's some, some kind of a torture chamber. A bathroom, said the dean, designed by bloody stupid Johnson. Arch-Chancellor Weatherwax only used it once and then had it sealed up. Mustrum, I beg you to reconsider. It's a Johnson. There was something of a pause, because even Ridcully had to adjust his mind around this. The late or at least severely delayed Bergholt Stutley Johnson, was generally recognised as the worst inventor in the world, yet in a very specialised sense. Merely bad inventors made things that failed to operate. He wasn't among these small fry. Any fool could make something that did absolutely nothing when you pressed the button. He scorned such fumble-fingered amateurs. Everything he built worked. It just didn't do what it said on the box. If you wanted a small ground-to-air missile, you asked Johnson to design an ornamental fountain. It amounted to pretty much the same thing, but this never discouraged him or the morbid curiosity of his clients. Music, landscape, gardening, architecture, there was no start to his talents. Nevertheless, it was a little bit surprising to find that Bloody Stupid had turned to bathroom design, but, as Ridcully said, it was known that he had designed and built several large musical organs and when you got right down to it, it was all just plumbing, wasn't it? The other wizards, who'd been there longer than the Arch-Chancellor, took the view that if bloody stupid Johnson had built a fully functional bathroom, he'd actually meant it to be something else. 
"'You know, I've always felt that uh, Mr. Johnson was a much maligned man,' said Ridcully eventually. "'Well, yes, of course he was,' said the lecturer in recent runes, clearly exasperated. "'That's like saying that jam attracts wasps, you see.' "'Not everything he made worked badly,' said Ridcully, stoutly, flourishing his scrubbing brush. "'Look at that thing they used down in the kitchens for peeling the potatoes, for example.' "'Ah, you mean the thing with the brass plate on it saying "'Improved Manicure Device, Arch-Chancellor?' "'Listen, it's, it's, it's just water,' snapped Ridcully. "'Even Johnson couldn't do much harm with water. "'Modo, open the sluices.' "'The rest of the wizards backed away "'as the gardener turned a couple of ornate brass wheels. "'I'm fed up with groping around for the soap like you fellows,' "'shouted the Arch-Chancellor as water gushed through hidden channels.' "'Hygiene! That's the ticket!' "'Don't say we didn't warn you,' said the dean, shutting the door. "'Ah, uh, I still haven't worked out where all the pipes lead, sir,' Modo ventured. "'We'll find out, never you fear,' said Ridcully happily. He removed his hat and put on a shower cap of his own design. In deference to his profession, it was pointy. He picked up a yellow rubber duck. "'Man the pumps, Mr. Modo! Or, or dwarf them, of course, in your case?' "'Yes!' Arch-Chancellor. Modo hauled on a lever. The pipes started a hammering noise and steam leaked out of a few joints. Ridcully took a last look around the bathroom. It was a hidden treasure, no doubt about it. Say what you like, old Johnson must sometimes have got it right, even if it was only by accident. The entire room, including the floor and ceiling, had been tiled in white, blue and green. In the centre, under its crown of pipes, was Johnson's patent Typhoon, Superior indoor ablutorium with automatic soap dish, a sanitary poem in mahogany, rosewood and copper. He'd got Modo to polish every pipe and brass tap until they gleamed. It had taken ages. Ridcully shut the frosted door behind him. The inventor of the ablutionary marvel had decided to make a mere shower a fully controllable experience, and one wall of the large cubicle had a marvellous panel covered with brass taps cast in the shape of mermaids and shells and, for some reason, pomegranates. There were separate feeds for salt water, hard water and soft water, and huge wheels for accurate control of temperature. Ridcully inspected them with care. Then he stood back, looked around at the tiles and sang, Me, me, me. His voice reverberated back at him. A perfect echo, said Ridcully, one of nature's bathroom baritones. He picked up a speaking tube that had been installed to allow the bather to communicate with the engineer. All systems go, Mr. Modo. Aye, aye, sir. Ridcully opened the tap marked spray and leapt aside because part of him was still well aware that Johnson's inventiveness didn't just push the edge of the envelope, but often went across the room and out through the wall of the sorting office. A gentle shower of warm water, almost a caressing mist, enveloped him. "'My word!' he exclaimed and tried another tap. Shower turned out to be a little more invigorating. Torrent made him gasp for breath, and Deluge sent him groping to the panel because the top of his head felt that it was being removed. Wave sloshed a wall of warm salt water from one side of the cubicle to the other before it disappeared into the grating that was set into the middle of the floor. "'Are you all right, sir?' Modo called out. "Marvellous! And there's a dozen knobs I haven't tried yet!' Modo nodded and tapped a valve. Ridcully's voice, raised in what he considered to be song, boomed out through the thick clouds of steam. 
Oh, I do, um, an agricultural worker of some description, possibly a thatcher, and I knew him well, and he was a farmer, now I come to think of it, and he had a daughter, and her name... I can't recall at the moment, and where was I? Ah, yes, chorus, something, 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 a humorously shaped vegetable, a turnip, I believe, something, 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 and a sweet nightingale. Ah! Oh, oh, oh! The song shut off suddenly. All Modo could hear was a ferocious gushing noise. Arch-Chancellor? After a moment, a voice answered from near the ceiling. It sounded somewhat high and hesitant. Uh, I, I, I wonder if you would be so, so very good as to shut the water off from out there, my dear chap. Uh, 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 uh quite gently, if you wouldn't mind. Modo carefully spun a wheel. The gushing sound gradually subsided. Ah, oh, uh, well done, said the voice, but now from somewhere nearer floor level. Well, <clears throat> jolly good job. I think we can definitely call it a success. Yes, indeed. Ah, uh, I wonder if you could help me walk for a moment. I inexplicably feel a little unsteady on my feet. Modo pushed open the door and helped Ridcully out and onto a bench. He looked rather pale. Yes, indeed, said the Arch-Chancellor, his eyes a little glazed. Astoundingly successful. Um, just a minor point, Modo. Yes, sir. There's a tap in there we perhaps should leave alone for now said Ridcully. I esteem it a service if you could go and make a little sign to hang on it. Yes, sir. Saying, uh, do not touch at all, or something like that. Right, sir. Hang it on the one marked Old Faithful. Yes, sir. No need to mention it to the other fellows, hmm? Yes, sir. Ye gods, I've never felt so clean. From a vantage point among some ornamental tilework near the ceiling, a small gnome in a bowler hat watched Ridcully carefully. When Modo had gone, the Arch-Chancellor slowly began to dry himself on a big fluffy towel. As he got his composure back, so another song wormed its way under his breath. On the second day of Hog's Watch, I sent my true love back a nasty little letter, oh yes indeed, and a partridge in a pear tree. The gnome slid down onto the tiles and crept up behind the briskly shaking shape. Ridcully, after a few more trial runs, settled on a song which evolves somewhere on every planet where there are winters. It's often dragooned into the service of some local religion, and a few words are changed, but it's really about things that have to do with gods only in the same way that roots have to do with leaves. The rising of the sun and the running of the deer. Ridcully spun. A corner of wet towel caught the gnome on the ear and flicked it onto its back. "'I saw you creeping up!' roared the Arch-Chancellor. "'What's the game, then, eh? Hmm? Small-time thief, are you?' The gnome slid backwards on the soapy surface. Yeah, "'What's your game, mister? You ain't supposed to be able to see me.' "'I'm a wizard. <laughs> we can see things that are really there, you know,' said Ridcully. "'And in the case of the Bertha, things that aren't there, too. What's in this bag?' You don't want to open the bag, mister. You really don't want to open the bag. Why? What have you got in it? The gnome sagged. It ain't what's in it, mister. It's what'll come out. 
I has to let them out, one at a time, no knowing what'd happen if they all gets out at once. Ridcully looked interested and started to undo the string. You'll really wish you hadn't, mister, the gnome pleaded. Will I? <laughs> what are you doing here, young man? The gnome gave up. Well, mm, you know the tooth fairy? Yes, of course, said Ridcully. Well, I ain't her, but it's <clears throat> sort of like the same business. What, you take things away? Uh, not take away as such, more sort of <clears throat> bring. Ah, like new teeth. Um, like new <clears throat> verrucas, said the gnome. Death threw the sack into the back of the sledge and climbed in after it. You're doing well, master, said Albert. The cushion is still uncomfortable, said Death, hitching his belt. I am not used to a big, fat stomach. Just a stomach's the best I could do, master. You're starting off with a handicap sort of thing. <laughs> Albert unscrewed the top off a bottle of cold tea. All that sherry had made him thirsty. Doing well, master, he repeated, taking a pull. All the soot in the fireplace, the footprints, them swigged sherries, the sleigh tracks all over the roofs. It's got to work. You think so? Sure. And I made sure some of them saw me. I know if they are peeping, Death added proudly. Well done, sir. Yes. Oh, here's a tip, though. Just ho, ho, ho will do. Don't say cower brief mortals unless you want them to grow up to be moneylenders or some such. Ho, ho, ho. Yes, you're really getting the hang of it. Albert looked down hurriedly at his notebook so that death wouldn't see his face. Now, I've got to tell you, Master, what'll really do some good is a public appearance. Really. Oh, I don't normally do them. The Hogfather's more of a public figure, Master, and one good public appearance would do more good than any amount of letting kids see you by accident. Good for the old belief muscles. Really? Ho, ho, ho. Right, right, that's really good, Master. Where was I? Yes, uh, the shops will be open late. Lots of kiddies get taken to see the Hogfather, you see. Not the real one, of course. Just some old geezer with a pillow up his jumper, saving your presence, Master. Not real? Ho, ho, ho? Oh, no. And you don't need the children know this? Ho, ho, ho. Albert scratched his nose. Uh, suppose so, Master. This should not be. No wonder there has been this difficulty. Belief was compromised. Ho, ho, ho. Could be, Master. Uh, the ho, ho. Um, Where does this travesty take place? Ho, ho, ho. Albert gave up. Well, Crumley's in the mall, for one. Very popular, the Hogfather Grotto. They always have a good hog father, apparently. Let's get there and slay them. Ho, ho, ho. Right you are, master. That was a pune, or play on words, Albert. I don't know if you noticed. I'm laughing like hell deep down, sir. Ho, 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 ho. Arch-Chancellor Ridcully grinned. He often grinned. He was one of those men who grinned 
even when they were annoyed, but right now he grinned because he was proud. A little sore still, perhaps, but still proud. "'Amazing bathroom, ain't it?' he said. "'They had it walled up, you know. Damn silly thing to do. I mean, perhaps there were a few teething troubles,' he shifted gingerly, "'but that's only to be expected. It's got everything, do you see? Foot baths in the shape of clamshells. Look, hmm? A whole wardrobe for dressing gowns. And that tub over there's got a big blower thingy, so you get bubbly water without even having to eat starchy food. Hmm? And this thingy here with the mermaids holding it up is a special pot for your toenail clippings. Whoa, it's got everything, this place. A special pot for nail clippings, said the Veruca gnome. Oh, can't be too careful, said Ridcully, lifting the lid of an ornate jar marked bath salts and pulling out a bottle of wine. Got hold of something like someone's nail clipping and you've got them under your control. That's the real old magic. Dawn of time stuff. He held the wine bottle up to the light. Should be cooled nicely by now, he said, extracting the cork. Verrucas, eh? Wish I knew why, said the gnome. You mean you don't know? Nope. Suddenly I wake up and I'm the Veruca gnome. Puzzling that, said Ridcully. My dad used to say the Veruca gnome turned up if you walked around at bare feet, but I never knew you existed. Hmm. I thought he just made it up. I mean, tooth fairies, yes, and them little buggers that live in flowers used to collect them myself as a lad, but can't recall anything about Verrucas. He drank thoughtfully. Got a distant cousin called Veruca, as a matter of fact. It's quite a nice sound when you come to think of it. He looked at the gnome over the top of his glass. You didn't become Arch-Chancellor without a feeling for subtle wrongness in a situation... Well, that wasn't quite true. It was more accurate to say that you didn't remain Arch-Chancellor for very long. Good job, is it? he said thoughtfully. Dandruff would be better, said the gnome. At least I'd be out in the fresh air. I think we'd better check up on this, said Ridcully. Of course, it might be nothing. Oh, thank you, said the Veruca gnome gloomily. It was a magnificent grotto this year, Vernon Crumley told himself. The staff had worked really hard. The Hogfather's sleigh was a work of art in itself, and the pigs looked really real and a wonderful shade of pink. The grotto took up nearly all of the first floor. One of the pixies had been disciplined for smoking behind the magic tinkling waterfall, and the clockwork dolls of all nations showing how we could all get along were a bit jerky and giving trouble, but all in all, he told himself... It was a display to delight the hearts of kiddies everywhere. The kiddies were queuing up with their parents and watching the display owlishly. And the money was coming in. Whoa, how the money was coming in. So that the staff would not be tempted, Mr Crumley had set up an arrangement of overhead wires across the ceilings of the store. In the middle of each floor was a cashier in a little cage. Staff took money from customers put it in a little clockwork cable car, sent it whizzing overhead to the cashier, who'd make change, and start it rattling back again. Thus, there was no possibility of temptation, and the little trolleys were shooting back and forth like fireworks. Mr Crumley loved Hogswatch. It was for the kiddies, after all. He tucked his fingers in the pockets of his waistcoat and beamed. Everything going well, Miss Harding? Yes, Mr Crumley said the cashier meekly. Jolly good! He looked at the pile of coins. A bright little zigzag crackled off them and earthed itself on the metal grill. Mr Crumley blinked. 
In front of him, sparks flashed off the steel rims of Miss Harding's spectacles. The grotto display changed. For just a fraction of a second, Mr. Crumley had the sensation of speed, as though what appeared had screeched to a halt, which was ridiculous. The four pink papier-mâché pigs exploded. A cardboard snout bounced off Mr. Crumley's head. There, sweating and grunting, in the place where the little piggies had been, were... Well, he assumed they were pigs, because hippopotamuses didn't have pointy ears and rings through their noses, but the creatures were huge and grey and bristly, and a cloud of acrid mist hung over each one. And they didn't look sweet. There was nothing charming about them. One turned to look at him with small red eyes, and didn't go oink, which was the sound that Mr Crumley, born and raised in the city, had always associated with pinks. It went... The sleigh had changed too. He'd been very pleased with that sleigh. It had delicate silver curly bits on it. He'd personally supervised the gluing on of every twinkling star. But the splendour of it was lying in glittering shards around a sledge that looked as though it had been built of crudely sawn tree trunks laid on two massive wooden runners. It looked ancient, and there were faces carved on the wood, nasty, crude, grinning faces that looked quite out of place. Parents were yelling and trying to pull their children away, but they weren't having much luck. The children were gravitating towards it like flies to jam. Mr Crumley ran towards the terrible thing, waving his hands. Stop that! Stop that! he screamed. You'll frighten the kiddies! He heard a small boy behind him say, They've got tusks! Cool! His sister said, Hey, look, that one's doing a wee! A tremendous cloud of yellow steam arose. Look, it's going all the way to the stairs. All those who can't swim, hold on to the banisters. They eat you up if you're bad, you know, said a small girl with obvious approval. All up, even the bones. They crunched them. Another, older child, opined, Don't be childish, they're not real. They've just got a wizard in to do the magic. Or it's all done by clockwork. Everyone knows they're not really real. One of the boars turned to look at him. The boy moved behind his mother. Mr Crumley, tears of anger streaming down his face, fought through the milling crowd until he reached the Hogfather's Grotto. He grabbed a frightened pixie. "'It's the campaign for equal heights that have done this, isn't it?' he shouted. "'They're out to ruin me, and they're ruining it for all the kiddies. Look at the lovely dolls!' The pixie hesitated. Children were clustering around the pigs, despite the continued efforts of their mothers. The small girl was giving one of them an orange." but the animated display of dolls of all nations was definitely in trouble. The musical box underneath was still playing Wouldn't it be nice if everyone was nice? But the rods that animated the figures had got twisted out of shape so that the Clatchian boy was rhythmically hitting the Omnian girl over the head with his ceremonial spear, while the girl in the Agatean national costume was kicking a small Hlamadosian druid repeatedly in the ear. A chorus of small children was cheering them on indiscriminately. There's, uh, there's more trouble in the grotto, Mr Crump, the pixie began. A red and white figure pushed its way through the crush and rammed a false beard into Mr Crumley's hands. That's it, said the old man in the hogfather costume. I don't mind the smell of oranges and the damp trousers, but I ain't putting up with this. He stamped off through the queue. Mr Crumley heard him add, and he's not even doing it right. Mr Crumley forced his way onward. Someone was sitting in the big chair. There was a child on his knee. The figure was... strange. It was definitely in something like a hogfather costume, but Mr Crumley's eye kept slipping. It wouldn't focus. It skittered away and tried to put the figure on the very edge of vision. 
It was like trying to look at your own ear. What's going on here? What's going on here? Mr Crumley demanded. A hand took his shoulder firmly. He turned round and looked into the face of a grotto pixie. At least it was wearing the costume of a grotto pixie, although somewhat askew, as if it had been put on in a hurry. Who are you? The pixie took the soggy cigarette end out of its mouth and leered at him. Call me Uncle Heavy, he said. You're not a pixie. Nah, I'm a fairy cobbler, mister. Behind Crumley, a voice said, And what do you want for Hogswatch, small human? Mr Crumley turned in horror. In front of, well, he had to think of it as the usurping Hogfather, was a small child of indeterminate sex who seemed to be mostly woollen bobble hat. Mr Crumley knew how it was supposed to go. It was supposed to go like this. The child was always struck dumb, and the attendant mother would lean forward and catch the hogfather's eye and say very pointedly in that voice adults use when they're conspiring against children, You want a baby tinkler doll, don't you, Doreen? And the just-like-mummy cookery set you've got in the window, and the cut-out kitchen range book, and what do you say? And the stunned child would murmur, Thank you, and get given a balloon or an orange. This time, though, it didn't work like that. Mother got as far as, you want to... Why are your hands on bits of string, child? The child looked down the length of its arms to the dangling mittens affixed to its sleeves. It held them up for inspection. Clubs, it said. I see. Very practical. Are you real? said the bobble hat. What do you think? The bobble hat sniggered. I saw your piggy do a wee, it said, and implicit in the tone was the suggestion that this was unlikely to be dethroned as the most enthralling thing the bobble hat had ever seen. Oh, um, good. It had a great big... What do you want for Hogswatch? said the Hogfather hurriedly. Mother took her economic cue again and said briskly, She wants a... The hogfather snapped his fingers impatiently. The mother's mouth slammed shut. The child seemed to sense that here was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity and spoke quickly. I want an army and a big castle with pointy bits, said the child, and a sword. What do you say? prompted the hogfather. Uh, a big sword, said the child after a pause for deep cogitation. That's right. Uncle Heavy nudged the Hogfather. They're supposed to say thank you, he said. Are you sure? People don't normally. I meant they thank the Hogfather, Albert hissed, which is you, right? Yes, of course. Ahem, <clears throat> you're supposed to say thank you. Thank you. And be good. This is part of the arrangement. Yes. Then we have a contract. The Hogfather reached into his sack and produced a very large model castle with, as correctly interpreted, pointy blue cone roofs on turrets suitable for princesses to be locked in, a box of several hundred assorted knights and warriors, and a sword. It was four feet long and glinted along the blade. The mother took a deep breath. You can't give her that, she screamed. It's not safe. It's a sword, said the Hogfather. They're not meant to be safe. She's a child, shouted Crumley. It's educational. What if she cuts herself? That will be an important lesson. Uncle Heavy 
whispered urgently. Oh, really? Oh, well, it's not for me to argue, I suppose. The blade went wooden. And she doesn't want all that other stuff, said Doreen's mother, in the face of previous testimony. She's a girl. Anyway, I can't afford big posh stuff like that. I thought I gave it away, said the hogfather, sounding bewildered. You do? said the mother. You do? said Crumley, who'd been listening in horror. You don't? That's our merchandise. You can't give it away. Hogwatch isn't about giving it all away. Uh, I mean, yes, uh, uh, of course, of course things are given away, he corrected himself, aware that people were watching. But first they have to be bought, do you see? I mean, <laughs> he laughed nervously, increasingly aware of the strangeness around him and the rangy look of Uncle Heavy. It's not as though the toys are made by little elves at the hub. <laughs> Damn right, said Uncle Heavy sagely. You'd have to be a maniac even to think of giving an elf a chisel, lest you want their initials carved on your forehead. You mean, this is all free, said Doreen's mother sharply, not to be budged from what she saw as the central point. Mr Crumley looked helplessly at the toys. They certainly didn't look like any of his stock. Then he tried to look hard at the new hogfather. Every cell in his brain was telling him that here was a fat, jolly man in a red and white suit. Well, nearly every cell. A few of the sparkier ones were saying that his eyes were reporting something else, but they couldn't quite agree on what. A couple had shut down completely. The words escaped through his teeth. It seems to be, he said.